Welcome to the Chronically Courageous Podcast. I'm your host, Bonnie Howard. Since I was a child, I've had chronic pain, yet was told time and time again that it was all in my head. So I pushed through my symptoms and I built a successful career until I found myself crouched on the floor of my office, barely conscious. After finally getting a diagnosis, I had to learn how to embrace the life I've been given as fully and happily as possible. Now, it's my mission to help you do the same. Join my guests and I each week for inspiring stories and tips on navigating the complexities of chronic illness. Together, I believe we can move forward with courage, passion, and purpose. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the very first episode of The Chronically Courageous. I'm your host, Bonnie Howard, and I am both nervous and bursting with excitement to be here today. Nervous because this is a very vulnerable situation to be in, but I feel like it is my purpose to serve as many of you as I can by putting out information about how to best manage chronic illness and rare disease and sharing my story and the stories of others so that you can learn from them and feel less alone and more validated. So today I brought in a very special guest and that guest is my fiance, David Pincus. He is my fiance just as of what, four or five days ago, David, I think. Yeah. So yes. So we've been together much longer than that, but we made it more official a few days ago. So I thought who better than to join me on this first episode than the one person who I love the most and who knows me the best. So what I'm going to do today, rather than sitting here and talking to you and telling you about my story, which I think it's important that you hear about in order to kind of understand where I'm coming from on this podcast and my purpose for it, I thought rather than just talking solo, I would have David actually put my interview we had on and interview me. So With no further ado, I'm going to turn the mic over to David, and we're just going to talk a little bit about my background and what's brought me to this point. David, it's Um, all you. Thank you so much, Bonnie. Thank you again for saying yes. On Wednesday, Tuesday, I was a boyfriend, and Wednesday, I was a fiancé. So (laughs) it was wonderful, and you made me the happiest man alive. So thank you so much for that. And this is also my first podcast ever because I'm not launching one. So Congratulations to you, by the way, for taking this on. Thank and, you, love. And you're welcome. And with that, like, tell us about this podcast. You know, what are you trying to communicate about your journey with chronic illness and to whom are you trying to reach? So I really want to reach out to the chronic illness community, anybody that suffers from an illness that is ongoing for an indefinite amount of time also the rare disease community, and the two can be existing together. So you can have both a rare and a chronic illness. That's one and the same, and that is the case with me. So I've learned a lot over these past several years after my official diagnosis, and it's really important to me to be able to share 
with as many people in my community as I can about what I've learned, how I've learned to live a really happy, satisfying, fulfilled life, despite the changes that I've had to make to my life and the changes in expectations. So I want this podcast to be for that group, but I also want it to be for the friends and family of people who love somebody who has a rare or chronic illness because there's a certain perspective that you gain as the person with the illness. And until you really sit in that seat, you can't understand fully what it's like. And I want to be able to help people that are close to people with a chronic illness to better understand so that they can better relate to and support those that they love who have a chronic or rare disease. That's a great answer because this would have been helpful for me getting to know you better early on in our relationship to formally or more fully understand chronic illness. I think without having to ask you all the questions about it, like it would have been good for me to you know have this as a resource. I want to take a tiny digression because you've talked about a zebra in regards to a rare disease. So maybe share with your listeners why the zebra. Okay, sure. Absolutely. Thank you. So the zebra is a symbol of rare disease. And the reason why is because in medicine, doctors are taught that when they hear hoofbeats to think about horses, they're not taught to think about the more rare situations like that may potentially be a zebra. The other thing is the zebras all have a similar look. And when we see a zebra, we know we're seeing a zebra, but every single zebra has different stripes. So although myself and someone else can have the exact same diagnosis of a rare disease, we can have very different symptoms and experiences and levels of disability based on whatever our illness is. So that's the meaning behind the zebra. Did that make sense? It did. And it's rather deep, actually, because when you look at zebras, you never think that they all have different patterns, but they mm -hmm. do, right? No two zebra are alike. So that's a, a beautiful metaphor, I think, for rare diseases. So let's yeah. talk a little bit about your backstory. Maybe tell us when you started to feel some of the symptoms of your illness or illnesses. Right. So gosh, David, as long as I can remember, I have had symptoms. And I would say I remember back as early as grade school, elementary school, starting with a lot of gastrointestinal issues and pain were probably my two primary symptoms from a young age. So my mother would call me snap, crackle, and pop. And the reason for that is because I had a lot of musculoskeletal pain and early onset arthritis. So to relieve that pain, I was constantly cracking every bone that I was able to crack in my body, my neck, my shoulders, my fingers, my toes, my hips, just to, re to give myself some source of relief. So that was one of my major issues, just constantly being in pain and not really knowing that that was anything different than anybody else's experience. I thought maybe this is just how people are. This is, you know, everyone's supposed to be in pain. And then... The other major symptom that I had was gastrointestinal issues. So my parents chalked it up to, oh, she's just a high anxiety kind of person. She's very nervous. And when she gets nervous, she has, you know, diarrhea and nausea and all these things. I would go in the car with them and get car sickness. And so there were just some weird things that didn't quite add up, but it was all kind of chalked up to, oh, well, you must be a hypochondriac and oh, maybe it's just growing pains that you're feeling and maybe it's just anxiety. And it was kind of brushed off as 
not being very serious or real. The arthritis, how old were you when you were suffering from this? Because most of the time you hear about arthritis when people are in their 50s, 60s or older. So this was school? Yes. And I did not have a formal diagnosis of arthritis at that point. Mm -hmm. But when I officially got diagnosed with arthritis, which I know I had it well before that, but when I was about 31 years old, I started having pain so severe that it led me to the emergency room. And I was sent home with a very little light cocktail of codeine, which did absolutely nothing for my pain. It didn't even take the edge off. And that night I laid in bed and the pain was just excruciating, shooting down my arm from my neck. I called my mother. I told her my right arm felt like it was feeling numb. And she just assumed that that was something from some of the medication I was taking. And I said, well, no, my left arm doesn't feel numb. So that's kind of strange. But she told me to wait till the morning and then we'd go back to the hospital. So I waited and I writhed in pain all night. And when she got there in the morning, I was unable to even get out of bed because I was literally just curled up in a ball and trying to manage the pain. And I was unable to even hide it from my son, who was two years old at the time. I was just crying and screaming in pain. So an ambulance showed up, took me to the hospital. Long story short, it turns out that I had a major issue that led to the paralysis of my right arm and an emergency cervical spine surgery. I was told that had I not had that surgery and if I had any sort of a remotely jarring accident, I would have wound up a quadriplegic. So I wasn't left with much of a choice. So they whisked me off in an ambulance to the hospital where they were providing those types of surgeries. I had the surgery and when they looked at my my imaging, my MRI scans, they said that at the age of 31, I had the neck of someone in their mid-60s because the arthritis was so profound. So that was really my first inkling of, okay, so, but, you know, and the interesting thing is nobody ever looked to think about why would this have happened? It wasn't attributed to a car accident or any sort of an accident. It just out of the blue just happened. and. Mm-hmm. I'd been feeling the pain for a while, but really we didn't understand, you know, the why behind it. None of the doctors had an explanation. So that was always, that stuck in the back of my mind, like, okay, A, this is scary because when's the next shoe going to drop? And B, what is wrong with me to have made this happen? But I kind of moved on with my life and went through a lot of physical therapy and healed from that particular situation. So yeah, does that answer that? It does, but it brings up, I think, a couple of things. One is, a sense of being dismissed with any symptoms you brought to light. And so I'm, I'm wondering about like primary symptoms and the secondary symptoms as a result of having your first ones being dismissed or not getting any actual diagnosis. So, you know, before the call, you talked a little bit about some anxiety and depression. So maybe talk about what were the primary symptoms and then the secondary ones that happened as a result of not feeling like you were hurt. That's a really great question, David, because there's so many things that go so much deeper than the symptoms of the illness itself. And there are definitely a lot of secondary symptoms that come from it. So, you know, like I talked about primary symptoms at that time were more or less pretty severe chronic pain and gastrointestinal issues. There were some things that could have been thought to be nerves, but it was actually my autonomic nervous system was not working properly. So they were causing 
what looked like anxiety from a mental standpoint, but was actually a biological reaction because my nervous system was not responding properly. So it would cause my heart to palpitate and my blood pressure to drop and my hands to shake and things like that. So having all of those things not acknowledged and not taken very seriously, I believe it did cause depression and it did cause me to feel not heard. And that was one of the most damaging things, I think, was not feeling validated and not feeling heard. And it led me, quite frankly, to addiction. And I wound up drinking at a very young age in my early teens. And it didn't take me long to figure out that I was an alcoholic. And I was using alcohol to numb my both my physical and my emotional pain because it was a very difficult situation to be in. Just the feeling of, here I have this crazy amount of pain, but no one believes me. And people are telling me it's all in my head. So the escape to that was to numb myself and to drink. And you went to rehab for that. And how long have you been sober for? I did. I went to rehab for that in... So my sobriety date is September 18th, 1989. So I believe that makes it over 30 years. Yeah, 30 and a half years. Well, congratulations about that. Thank you, which makes me sound a lot older than I am, but I actually, <laughs> I'm very introspective and I, it didn't take me long to figure out that it was a problem. Things were going downhill fast for me and my life was kind of falling apart. And yeah, so I figured it out pretty quickly that it was an issue. Okay. So that was one way to cope, albeit not the healthiest way. So you get, you get through that coping. However, the underlying issues are still there, right? That doesn't help you treat the underlying pain. When's the first time you think you felt hurt? Maybe a first diagnosis and tell us about that. Yeah, so I remember it clearly. So after I went to a gastroenterologist, I got a few diagnoses, but nothing that really explained what was happening. It still didn't all add up and it didn't explain nearly all of my symptoms. But that led me to, when I started to have you know the real nervous system issues where I was shaking and heart palpitations and dizziness and extreme low blood pressure, I wound up going to a cardiologist. And that cardiologist was actually very dismissive of me. He said, you're, you know, your heart rate's so low, probably because you're very physically fit and you work out a lot. But he said, you know what, I'm going to do one more thing. I'm going to send you to a doctor that's called an electrophysiologist, which is a doctor that studies your heart rate and rhythm and looks at that. And he sent me to a doctor by the name of Dr. Michael Zawani, who I will never forget because this man was the first man that really made me feel, first doctor that made me feel heard. He looked at my symptoms and he put me on a heart rate monitor for several weeks. And he said, I think you have something called dysautonomia. And like most of you hearing this, I was like, say, what? <laughs> what, what is that? So. What is it? That's a great question. So dysautonomia is a malfunction of the autonomic nervous system. And we think when we think about the autonomic nervous system, an easy way to think about it is all the functions that happen automatically or are supposed to happen automatically in your body, mm-hmm. like your heart beating, we take for granted that we're going to breathe. Our, you know, our, our lungs are going to breathe for us. Our heart's going to beat for us. And our blood pressure is going to stay regulated and our gastrointestinal system is going to work properly and our eyes are going to work properly. In my case, because I have dysautonomia, none of that is true. So nothing quite works the way that it's supposed to. 
And it causes me, like I said, heart palpitations. It causes sometimes tremors. It causes a lot of my gastrointestinal symptoms. It causes me to feel very lightheaded and dizzy and admittedly spacey sometimes. <laughs> I've been called a space cadet on more than one occasion and I admit it. So it causes a multitude of issues. And that was really the first time that I said, oh, okay. So a lot of these symptoms now are tying to one root issue and that makes sense. So that was the start of it all. But is dysautonomia an illness? Is that a symptom of something else or is that the root cause? What is that? So dysautonomia is really a, an umbrella term for a neurological condition where your autonomic nervous system doesn't work properly. It's not a disease in and of itself. Mm -hmm. It's more like a collection of symptoms that are caused by the dysregulation of your autonomic nervous system. Is it always comorbid with something else that contributes to it? It okay. can be, okay. but not always. Yeah. So sometimes people that go through chemotherapy can wind up having dysautonomia. People mm -hmm. that have certain immune deficiencies can have it. In my case, I have something called Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, which is a connective tissue disorder. And that is very commonly comorbid or, you know, in other words, it goes along with dysautonomia. So there's a variety of reasons. There's, you know, several autoimmune conditions that it's common with. So yeah, variety of reasons. Okay. Before we get into EDS a little bit more, I just want to comment that one of the other symptoms I notice with you in dysautonomia is sometimes you need glasses and sometimes you don't, and you can't right. actually get a glasses <laughs> prescription because your eyes change during the day, right? So like, that is you need them, but you can't wear them because they don't have like adaptive glasses for you. You know, that would change by that, whatever script you need at that time of the day. Yep. That's yep. exactly right. Yep. Okay. So how old were you when you got the dysautonomia diagnosis from the electrophysiologist? Oh gosh, I don't, I want to say that was about six years ago. I was in my early forties at the time. Okay. So that's reasonably recent. So now you're starting to get some answers, right? To the yes. symptoms you've had all your life. I believe you had a moment also, and you talk about it in the intro to your podcast, where you were in pain on the floor of your office, right? So oh, yes. was that before or after that? What led up to that? Yes. So that was a moment that I captured for the purposes of the intro of the podcast, but there were many, many, many of those moments. I had several times where I had to have security guards from my office take me home and make sure that I got home safely because I was unable to drive. There were times when I was in the parking lot of my office on the phone with my parents asking them to pick me up because I felt like I was going to lose consciousness and I couldn't, I definitely was not safe to drive. There were many times when I was afraid to stand up from my desk because I was afraid to pass out. But then I had the gastro symptoms. So I had to use the restroom. So it was a catch 22. So I'd find myself, I'd find myself holding onto the walls and trying to walk to the bathroom without falling over. So it was quite a variety of things that happened to me in the office that were very non-office appropriate. <laughs> but luckily, I was surrounded by a great team. And, you know, there was one time where my heart started racing. I felt like I was going to pass out. So I, one of my close friends that I worked with took me into the conference room, sat me down and I was just trying to breathe because that's another thing that gets affected is sometimes my I get shortness of breath and I feel like I can't catch my breath. And he brought in another person and then he brought in someone who had a little bit of medical experience and 
tried to get me to stabilize and then we, we got me home with a safe ride. So. Okay. So it must've been incredibly difficult to kind of, to keep a full-time job, to keep it together. You're a single mom at the time too, right? So yes. you're the sole income earner. You want to be a, a super mom because that's your super personality, right? You're <laughs> obviously working really hard. You're really intense at work. So how did you do it? And did that come to an unfortunate end? Let me just start by saying this is one of many reasons I love you so much. (laughs) You truly have such compassion and such empathy and you really see me and thank you for that. So one thing, thank you. And I think one thing your listeners will learn throughout this podcast and one of the reasons I am so in love with you is because you have such an incredible heart and incredible warmth and so much to give the world. So I think they're going to get a lot from this. And I'm, I'm, you know, immensely honored to be the first guest on your podcast. And it's, you're beautiful inside, outside, every way. So thank you. So and thank you for being vulnerable because I, I know this is a vulnerable moment for you right now. It is. It is. And you're making me cry. And that's something that <laughs> second is- time this week. That is something that my podcast listeners will also learn about me is that I'm very comfortable with my emotions. I learned to be because leading back to your last question, David, I, for a very long period of time, I tried to fake perfection. I was raised to always look perfect on the outside, act perfect on the outside. And even when I was falling apart, I would put a face onto the world that made me look strong and healthy and energetic and happy, even though inside I was falling apart. And I took my role as a mother very seriously. And that I always, although I've had, I've held many positions in a corporate world that were, you know, might have been considered important. My number one most important role is having raised my son, who's going to be 18 now in like, eight more days. So it took every ounce of my energy, honestly, to keep up and to be the mother that I wanted to be. So I was, yes, I was a single mother. I was in a, let's see, what's the word I'm looking for? See, this is what happens. David knows when I lose my train of thought and sometimes the words are in my mind, but they don't come through my mouth or they're not in my mind. But it was a fairly adversarial divorce. So there were times when I was not getting my child support. I was not comfortably able to support my son in the way that I wanted to. And I was still trying to hold myself together physically and be there for him. And I had a very intense job. I mean, I was working in a multi-billion dollar investment firm that was very fast-paced, very like pants on fire all the time, running around, putting out fires, everything's an emergency, very type A. And I was very type A. I'm still trying to get over that. But I think I have to a large degree, but it still sneaks up on me every so often. But it was really challenging to hold that all together. Does that answer the question? I'm not sure if I did or not. It does, but I think there's a little bit more to it. And so let's share with your listeners, when people ask you today what you do now for a living... Mm -hmm. That's always kind of a sensitive question. And I think there's still a tiny bit of hesitation. You've been getting better at lately embracing the reality, which is you're on disability right now. So people look at you and they see this vibrant, beautiful, physically strong person. And what they don't know is what they don't know, that you really had to hit bottom 
potentially, right? And it took mm-hmm. you a couple of years to get on disability. Maybe share with sure. yeah. About that. So I was working up until the bitter end and I would literally be at my desk in my office with a space heater behind me because I was freezing cold all the time. And that's another part of my dysautonomia is that I have an inability to regulate my body temperature. So where other people were walking around with no sleeves and no space heater, I was in a sweater with a space heater on me crunched over my desk. And, you know, David, you mentioned before my not being able to sometimes see properly. Well, I'd be looking at my computer. And that's one of the things when I look at a computer for more than an hour or two at a time, everything kind of gets blurry. And so I'd be staring at my computer, increasing the size of the, so you know, zooming in so much that, you know, it was like, you know, like a first grader book at looking at the text at a very <laughs> extremely large because I, that was the only way I could even remotely read it. So I wound up in the emergency room and I called one of my colleagues or sent a text message and I said, would you please let them know I won't be in tomorrow because I had an emergency and I'm, you know, not well. And they, they could tell when I, you know, I hit it to the degree that I was able to, but towards the end, it was harder and harder to hide it. So I did confide in a couple of people at work. Not everybody knew, but a couple of people knew at work what was going on with me. And actually, I went through a bunch of testing to get the dysautonomia diagnosis. And as it turns out, I was at my desk at work when I got the phone call from the doctor to let me know. And this is the crazy part. So I got a phone call from the nurse and she said, oh, your tests came back negative for both dysautonomia and small fiber peripheral neuropathy, which was another diagnosis that I was being tested for. Five minutes later, I got a call from the doctor saying the nurse made a mistake and that I had tested positive not just for dysautonomia, but also for small fiber peripheral neuropathy. So it was a little bit of a roller coaster emotions, but I think the one thing that I felt more than anything was a sense of relief because I felt that finally, they're not telling me there's nothing wrong. Finally, they're not telling it's all in my head. Finally, they're not telling me they don't have answers. Finally, I had something I could hold on to, some kind of an answer. And that was, you know, and some people might consider it kind of something to mourn over. In my case, I was in many ways ecstatic that I finally had that answer. So things wound up degrading fast. And after that visit to the emergency room, I came back to the office and I got called in to talk with the CEO and was told to take a couple of weeks off to just take care of my health. And, mm-hmm. you know, they keep me on the payroll, but just take some time for you. Well, after that two weeks was over, I came back in and long story short, I was asked to leave. It was pretty obvious that I was not capable of doing the job I was hired to do you know, to be done. And, you know, it required travel, which was not in the cards. I wasn't able to do that. It required, you know, just sitting at a desk for any period of time, I wasn't able to do it because my mind just would go numb and my vision would go blurry. And I would be so distracted by my pain that I I couldn't focus. And I found myself making, like I said, I'm a bit of a perfectionist. I found myself making a lot of mistakes, which was embarrassing for me. But That day when I lost my career, it was such a highly emotional day because I truly felt like my identity was lost. I had worked really, really hard. I mean, I had my financial licenses. I had my Series 7 license, my Series 66 license. I had my master's degree, my bachelor's degree. I had worked my way up to, you know, being in a very 
beautiful, you know, I had my own office and a beautiful class A office space. And it was, you know, it was kind of a cool, you know, I felt sort of important, you know, (laughs) and that was stripped away from me. And it was like, who am I now? If not this person that gets dressed up in a business suit every day and goes into her fancy office and sits in her big executive chair and who am I? And I was destroyed by that for a period of time. So I came to the conclusion that, okay, this is not something that's going to be going away anytime soon. And I realized I'm not going to be able to work. I'm just unable. So I applied for disability. And that was a whole huge chapter in and of itself. I believe it took me, I want to say, before I saw the money in the bank, it was close to three years from the time I applied. I had to go through getting denied initially, which is very, very common when people apply for disability. And then I filed an appeal, which was also denied. And then I went to kind of the last ditch effort, which was hiring an attorney and asking for a trial, which I did. And it took probably like another, I want to say close to a year to get a trial. And I did that. And finally, after that, I got approved after a period of months after that. And you went through your savings during this time too, right? Because when you're not approved for it, they're not sending you any check. So... Yes, yes. Yes. That was a scary time because here I was a single mother with no income and living solely off of my savings. I was fortunate to have family that was able to help me out and bridge that gap between the time that I depleted my savings and got approved for disability. So, but not everybody's that fortunate and it's, it's a really tough situation to be in. Oh, it's, it's terrifying if that can take so many years and people don't have the support or the safety net for that. Exactly. So you said at the end of your career, you kept asking, who am I? Who am I? So Bonnie Howard today, who are you? So gosh, and this is why this is so important for me to be doing this now, because I have redefined myself on so many different levels. And I see myself now as a person who has a ton of empathy in their heart, a ton of love in their heart, a ton of compassion, and someone who really wants to share the message to other people and save other people that pain of having to go through all those years of feeling not heard and feeling so alone. I want to be that voice for people who are in that position that I was in for so many years until I got my diagnosis in my 40s and then more diagnoses after that. I see myself as an advocate and a voice for the chronic illness and rare disease community. So I'd love to ask you about your diagnoses. I do want to quickly say that you mentioned being in the emergency room. We actually measure the length of our relationship by how many times (laughs) you've had to go to the hospital and how many ER visits we've had. And I think we average one every six months, right? So we've had at least four uh, trips, surgery, a major surgery, right? So share with everybody, please, all of your diagnoses. Oh my gosh. And should they get a thesaurus, a medical dictionary? Like what do they need to prepare to hear these things? I say at this point, just listen and you don't feel any pressure to memorize anything because everyone's got their own story and their own diagnoses. And one thing I found is that no matter what the diagnosis in this community, there's so much similarity between what we go through emotionally and physically and just the evolution of, you know, coming to the acceptance of our diagnoses. So let's see. So initially there were the gastrointestinal things that I got diagnosed with. There was the 
irritable bowel syndrome, gastroesophageal reflux disease, and gastritis. Then I got diagnosed with dysautonomia. Then a few years down the line, I got kind of the what I consider to be probably the primary diagnosis, and that is Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. So Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, I was diagnosed with about two, approximately two, not quite two years ago, maybe about a year and a half ago. And that is a genetic connective tissue disorder that affects every single part of me. So connective tissue is found in all of your organs. It's in your skin. It's in your teeth. It's in your eyes. It's everywhere. So it is the reason why I had to have that neck surgery, that spinal surgery that I had, because it causes weakness in the joints and the ligaments and all, you know, all that connective tissue in your body. So my body is held together where most people would say, you know, their body is held together by cement. Mine's held together by like duct tape. <laughs> so it's very easy for my joints to kind of slip out of place. Sometimes I'll wake up in the morning and I'll have a rib that's out of place and it's like stabbing me. And I feel like when I breathe, I, I feel sharp pains. That's subluxation, right? That's what you call that? Yes. See, you're such a, you're so good at this. (laughs) I pay attention. David, I will tell you, as my boyfriend and now fiance has learned so many medical terms that he never imagined having to learn in his life. Right. I'm a total medical poser. I can (laughs) ask doctors lots of questions. (laughs) So yes. So yes, that is called a subluxation. So many of us are familiar with the term dislocation, which is where your joint fully dislocates and it fully comes out of place. But a subluxation is like a partial dislocation. So most of the time when that happens, I can get my joints to go back into place through kind of maneuvers. Other times, not so much. So I have one of my more recent diagnoses is hip dysplasia, which is where my sockets of my hips are not properly formed. So my hips kind of slide in and out of place. And so David and I would be walking and all of a sudden I'd let out a scream or maybe like an expletive (laughs) because it hurts like hell, quite frankly. I mean, you're walking and all of a sudden, you know, to feel your hip kind of come out of place and it's like you're being shot in the leg or like stabbed by a knife. So yeah, so that's one of the things that happens with Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. And You know, David mentioned all the hospital visits and the surgeries and things like that. So just to give you an idea, some of the major surgeries I've had, you already heard about the spinal surgery. Then about two and a half years ago, I had a pacemaker put in because my heart rate was going extremely low and it was making me feel faint all the time and very fatigued. So I had a pacemaker put in to regulate my heart rate. And most recently, I got a bionic hip. I had a full hip replacement, my right hip. And I've been feeling this pain for a while, but again, I have over the course of my life really kind of learned to ignore it and dismiss it. So it got to the point where I was having to use a cane to walk with because I was in so much pain. I couldn't put all the weight on that leg. So David and I went and we got it checked out. And as it turned out, it was a big hot mess <laughs> and I needed to have the surgery. And then when they did the surgery, they realized it was even worse than what it looked like on the scans. So it was, you know, my labrum was completely torn off the bone and my, I don't even remember all the details, but the doctor said it was a good thing that I came in when I did because I would have been unable to walk in a pretty short period of time at all had I not had that surgery. Right. So the tear was not reparable because your hip socket was too shallow. So, right. right? So you had to go in for a full replacement and they had to hollow out more of your hip socket and 
put something in there and then you have a special like magical joint with like a ceramic ball in another ball. So you have super mobility there. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So I don't think you shared with us all of your other diagnoses. I believe you also have like mast cell activation. I do. Right? I what do. Else? Yeah. You are so good. You know all the, he is a detail guy. <laughs> well, there's, there's a reason for that question, Obani, because yeah. right now we're in the midst of COVID-19. Right. And so mast cell activation puts you at a higher risk mm-hmm. for, potentially, yes. for potentially, right, for struggling with COVID-19 if you were to, God forbid, get it. So we share with everybody what what mast cell activation is and why that puts you in a different category. Sure. Yes. So at the same time that I got my Ehlers-Danlos diagnosis, I got diagnosed with mast cell activation syndrome. And as it turns out, that was actually the root cause for a lot of my gastrointestinal issues. So now I take a medicine four times a day, a liquid that I put into some water and I shake it up and I drink it a half hour before I eat so that I don't get gastrointestinal distress, which most of the time it works. I still have my moments and I still have problems and much more than normal, but I would say it's made a dramatic difference. So the other thing mast cell activation does is essentially it makes me allergic to anything and everything. And from day to day, my allergies can differ. So for instance, last night, David and I had this soup. And as we're sitting there eating it, he says, oh, you have a hive on your head. And oh, you're, there's one on your cheek. And it, it'll be something maybe I normally I could eat and be perfectly fine. And then I'll eat it one day and it affects me really poorly. And I'll wake up with hives all over my legs. The mast cell activation, actually, if I eat or inhale the wrong kind of thing, you know, when people wear colognes, it makes me very sick to my stomach. All right, welcome back. And <laughs> for everybody's benefit and entertainment out there, we just had a moment of brain fog, each of us together, and we were not sure if this podcast was recording. But we yes. are pretty confident and comfortable it is right now. And speaking of right now, it is April 4th or 5th that we're recording this on. 5th, yes. April 5th, 2020. And we are in the midst of the coronavirus outbreak and COVID-19. And I wanted to ask you two questions about that, Bonnie. Okay. First is how your underlying conditions may affect both your susceptibility to contracting it and what it may or may not do to you. And then the second is what unique perspective you have having your conditions for several years and what you see other people doing now in order to cope with the contagiousness of COVID-19. Right. Yeah. Okay, so let me start with my susceptibility to contracting it. So what I have is not an autoimmune condition. So it does not necessarily increase. That is good. So it does not increase my susceptibility necessarily to getting it. However, if I do get it, which hopefully I won't, it could be not a pretty thing because all of my other symptoms could get more set off by the virus. So essentially, whenever I get sick, you and I could get the same thing. As a matter of fact, we did not too long ago. We both got a flu and you did not run a fever, but I know you felt very sick. And I ran a fever of 103.2 and I had a, a pretty high fever for several days. So because of all of my underlying conditions, my reactivity to getting certain illnesses can sometimes be a lot more profound than what a normal 
air quotes, healthy persons would be. So it's been so interesting to see how other people have responded to this epidemic right now or pandemic, because I see people using antibacterial wipes and antibacterial, what do they call that stuff where you pump it? (laughs) Brain fog. The gel. The gel, yeah. The gel that you, yeah. So I see people doing all, taking all sorts of measures to keep themselves free of the germs. And that for me is a daily function. And it's something I know you used to tease me about a little bit. And now I see you doing it probably even more voraciously than I am. It's interesting to see people's response to that because, you know, I live in a state of constant, I don't want to say fear, but a constant state of like kind of high alert on, you know, I could get this and it could be really bad and it could take me in a really bad direction. So I take every precaution to not get sick or if I know someone's sick to stay far, far away from them. But now I'm seeing the rest of the world do the same thing. So that's super interesting. The other thing I have to say is I have become so used to living in a state of uncertainty because every day when I wake up, I don't know what set of symptoms is going to hit me that day. I don't know if I'm going to be, if my pain's going to be at a level nine or if it's going to be at a level three or a 10 or if something's going to dislocate or if I'm going to wind up back in the emergency room for some unknown reason. I just don't know. And that is what I see people living in right now on a larger scale is, oh my gosh, you know, we don't know what causes this illness or where it came from or how to treat it or how, you know, how it's transferred. And, you know, is, is it airborne or is it just if somebody sneezes on you? And there's so many unknowns. And that's something that is one of the gifts, I suppose, of having lived with every, with the rare conditions that I have, because I don't know a lot of things. I mean, for years, I didn't know why my body was responding the way it was. I didn't know you know, why all of a sudden is my right arm paralyzed? I don't know, you know, I know that there's not a cure and the doctors, there's still a lot of things that are unknown in the medical community. And I make it my mission whenever I do go to the emergency room or if I go to get an MRI or a CAT scan or whatever, whatever it is, the flavor of the day or the week that I'm going through, I make sure that I educate the technicians and the nurses and the doctors even about all of my rare conditions because I don't want other people to go through not having been diagnosed for as many years as I went through and not being believed and not being validated. So the COVID-19 pandemic is really, I feel like I'm better prepared than many to deal with it because I've learned how to manage uncertainty. I've learned how to manage, you know, kind of, I want to say maybe bad news. <laughs> I've learned I've learned how to manage the unknown and the lack of treatment and the lack of knowledge. So I really feel like that is an advantage to me. You do seem much less freaked out than most. And I, I did used to think your germophobia was cute. <laughs> now I admire it and I'm so grateful you have supplies. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm, I do. I'm taking care of myself, not just to take care of myself, but to take care of you as well, too, because I don't want you to get anything. So I know right. that, you know, everybody you're in contact with is a potential, you know, vector for getting something. I just want to end with two more questions, if I can. So, of course. and you might want to do a full episode about this. I think we talked about that. Your okay. connective tissue, you have talked about strength training as yes. being a critical, critical part of helping you keep your body together. 
mm-hmm. right? For lack of a better expression. So Absolutely. do you want to talk about that a little bit or save that for Absolutely. No, we can, I'll just touch on it lightly. So I think, gosh, since the age of about, since my teens, I've been working out and it's never been easy for me. It's never been a painless situation. But one thing that I learned, even without knowing why, is that I always felt better from working out. My body just feels better, stronger, healthier, more energized, and less painful when I'm able to work out on a consistent basis. So I think just subconsciously, I knew that, you know, working out's great for everybody. But for me, it was a matter of, feeling like I can't get out of bed and feeling like, okay, I have energy to like do a little bit. So I've really pushed myself. And there's times when I go to the gym when I'm nauseous and I'm dizzy and I'm in pain. And there's times where I even... I've had tears in my eyes at the gym because it just takes everything in me just to get there and get through those workouts. But I know that on the other side of it, I'm going to feel better. And that I need to build muscle to compensate for the weakness in my connective tissue. So that's kind of a a high level overview of that and why working out is so, so important to me and why even though, you know, in on paper, I'm weaker than most, Mm -hmm. I've made it a point to strengthen myself as much as I possibly can to combat all the issues and live better. Awesome. And you mentioned a couple of minutes ago, about when you go to the doctor, you share with them everything you possibly can. And I believe that is your mission. And you've, you've talked about that and you've talked about that as the reason for your podcast. And recently you helped somebody get a diagnosis, right? The dysautonomia diagnosis when they wouldn't have had it otherwise. So maybe let's wrap up with maybe a little bit of that story and on your mission. Yes. I wish that someone had, you know, decades ago come to me and told me, about these conditions because maybe I could have looked into it sooner and maybe I could have lessened the emotional pain that I had to go through of not being believed and not being validated and not receiving any sort of treatment whatsoever. So I shout it from the rooftops every chance I get. (laughs) Every chance I get, I talk about it and I've gotten more and more comfortable with it and more and more open about it. And I did recently have the experience of an online Facebook community that I'm a part of sharing my story and having someone tell me that their husband has a lot of very similar symptoms and he's not been able to work either. And she asked me some questions kind of, you know, offline about it. And as it turns out, he has dysautonomia. And for the past 10 years, he's been struggling to find a diagnosis and really, really struggling just to live and get by. And knowing that I was able to help them find that, there's nothing more meaningful to me than that. Knowing that I was able to bring someone to an answer more quickly than they otherwise would have, or, you know, who knows if they ever would have found an answer. It just made me feel like this is why I'm here. This is why I've gone through all of the pain that I've gone through, through all the diagnoses, all of the years of, of struggling. And if I can help other people with my story and by sharing my story and by sharing the stories of others, that makes my life so meaningful and every bit of pain that I have gone through and still go through both physically and emotionally will have been worth it because I will have been able to help 
so many other people. So that's my reason for making this podcast. I don't feel like my reach is far enough with just, you know, speaking to people individually. I have a limited amount of energy. So I can't possibly reach the number of people and the amount of people that I want to reach just, you know, without this kind of a medium. So by using the podcast platform, my hope is to reach as many people as I can, help as many people as I can to feel supported, heard, understood, validated, and get their diagnoses and get on a path to living the best life they can. Because I'll tell you what, yes, I'm in pain. Every day I'm in pain to different degrees. Yes. There's many times during the day where I feel dizzy, where I feel fatigued, all of these things. It's hard for me to get out of bed in the morning. But all that said, if I can know that by doing that, that I'm helping other people, it's all worth it. Every second of it is worth it to me. Fantastic. (laughs) You're beautiful inside and out. That's, uh, I think, a perfect place to end. Thank you, love. It means the world to me that you took your time and energy to listen to this entire episode of The Chronically Courageous. If you know others that would benefit from listening, please share it with them. And if you haven't yet, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your podcast player of choice. I welcome your feedback and questions. So please email me at bonnie at thechronicallycourageous.com. That's B-O-N-N-I at thechronicallycourageous.com. As always, I'm sending you so much love, happiness, and healing.